I got my old computer, this computer that's recorded on now, in when I first came to Washington, and you can tell how you can tell when I got it from the oldest thing that was added to my iTunes, because all of my pre-existing iTunes library um, says date added, and it's August twentieth, two thousand nine. Welcome to this week's episode of Fear, Honor, and Interest, the podcast, where two straight white guys who went to Yale solve America's cultural divisions by being on new computers in slightly different angles. I'm your host, Charles Bobinger, coming to you from snowy and shut down Washington, D.C., with me on the line, as always, from Istanbul, my co-host, David Wheel. David, how's it going? I'm doing well. It's, uh, yeah, this, these new angles are so stimulating that we should upload this as a video. Yeah. Well, no, no. I um, I've learned. I've 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 been seeing myself from new angles and cameras a lot over the last couple of days, and it has reminded me of how much work I need to go. I still need to do um, with dropping pounds that I added in the last couple of years. So uh, that's not going to happen. Um, okay. Especially since you're better dressed than I am today, as you usually are, since it's much later over in Istanbul than it is at 10 a.m. here in Washington D.C. on a Sunday. I find it easy to be "quote unquote" better dressed just by not, basically, not having t-shirts. I I only wear I only wear button-down shirts. Well, that so. was me through all of high school. What basically changed yeah. was after I was injured, putting a button-on shirt on while you're in a wheelchair was like annoying enough that I'm just like, okay, we're with t-shirts now. Yeah. Um, plus, almost that is very interesting. Yeah. Plus, virtually every t-shirt I own was given to me as a gift. Um, right. In fact, the only T-shirts I think I ever actually bought myself were a couple of Magic the Gathering related T-shirts, <laughs> um, and yeah. uh, which is actually part of why I've been seeing myself from new angles. Those of you listening, I am recording this on a very old computer, but it's the same old computer that I've been recording this on throughout the entire history of the show. You see, my iMac uh, is the computer that I got when I came to D.C. for law school in August of 2009. Um, it's been my main computer throughout all of those years, and only just now this week have I finally obtained a new one. And because I go 10 years between computers, I like to go all out. And I finally got a computer, a new iMac, that is powerful enough for me to stream myself playing Magic Online, uh, which I have I, been doing. I certainly hope you're trying to use iMac as a, as a joke to refer to your computer being even older than it is. But the iMac was that, like, pastel, clear plastic. No, wasn't that the, the cube? They called them cubes? No, the iMac was, like, maybe... I think it might have been one of the first computers to get to do away with the tower. Um I will have like you know, I, I opened up, it had no tower. It was all I just opened up the About This Mac on my new computer, and it says Mac OS Mojave version 10.14.2 iMac Retina 5K 27-inch 2017. Okay. Well, so. This is going to be even, if we, if we go further, this is going to be even worse than our discussion of firearms. Well, yeah. I mean. But maybe we'll get some, uh, you know, some, uh, some, listener, some, mail. some listener mail. Uh, yeah, well, anyway, I got a new computer, and I've been watching myself stream, and boy, I have only seen, I have one mirror in my apartment, basically, and it's in my bathroom, so I've seen myself from the same angle for the last six straight years, and there are only very rare occasions where I see myself from any other angle, such as a webcam, and now that I have one at a different angle and with better quality, boy, I, 
I don't feel so great about my appearance, David. I need you to talk <laughs> me down here. Um, well, you know, it's an interesting point. I have very strong opinions about um, about the topic of shame, body shaming. I think shame is a powerful motivator, and shame can be positive. But, that being said, it has to come from, it has to sort of, the, the shame has to exist in the context of deep love and support. So you have to know that you are loved and supported even while, or, or, or know that you deserve and can get love and support while allowing the real shame that you feel to motivate you to act. No, that's, that's this is this that's is how I, I mean, that's that's my personal experience of having moved from being a morbidly obese child to a you know relatively healthy. Oh yeah, and I've I've definitely adult. been much fatter than this before. And part yeah. of what makes me sad about it now is just that a couple of years ago I looked so good. <laughs> and then I put it back on, and right. it was a lot of work to do that the first time, and I don't want to do it all again. Um, yeah. but, but actually, you, but I think part of what you're right on about is that every time I have ever lost a sizable amount of weight, it was for something intrinsic to me that I wanted to lose the weight, not for some external source. Like Those are the ones where you're like, oh, I want to like look good so people like me more or look good so women find me more attractive. Every time that's ever been a motivation for me, it's just not enough. Um, it's only ever been when I want it for me that it's ever yeah. yeah. Well, that's an, that's an interesting point. I, because my, part of my story, again, uh, just to speak from my personal experience was that I, I mean, it was totally for a girl, you know, that I, hmm. I was sort of, I had my first kind of adolescent fixation and, uh, realized that. I, you know, I wanted to be able to present myself as someone attractive and lovable. Right. And the, you know, I just, <laughs> I've looked at myself as like, how could I ever expect a woman to be physically attracted to me? And so I was motivated by that to, uh, to start losing the weight. But, you know, to some, to, to some extent it was externally directed as you, uh, based on, you know, relative to the sort of framework that you just put out there, it was actually externally collected. But at the same time, um, it was like, I deserve, like, I know I want that for myself. Like, I, I want romance. I want, you know, romantic heterosexual love. You know, that's I knew that about myself. And so I embarked on that endeavor. So... Sort of, sort of splitting the difference maybe between the two categories that you put out there, but you know, but it's, but it's, but it's complicated because. Um, you well, know. you heard David. Everyone who's fat is still questioning their heterosexuality. <laughs> right, exactly. That's exactly what he said. People want different things, and um, you know, people just because I wasn't comfortable with the body I had doesn't mean other people can't be comfortable with the bodies they have and that they can't find people who love them for who they are and 
in the bodies they have, you know, so it's uh, just obviously my experience is only my experience. and It doesn't track to other people's, but at the same time, um, acknowledging the tremendous diversity and complexity of the real world, I think, um, you know, there is a lot of, particularly in America, uh, there is a lot of happy talk and self-deception out there. Uh, on, unfortunately, also on these topics that we uh, have been discussing, which have no, actually, which have certain very subtle but important relations to the topic that we were intending to discuss. David's getting there on segues, people. Aren't we all proud of him? It's like a baby <laughs> taking his first steps. <laughs> fat, fat little baby. Fat little babies. I mean, I was, I was born over ten pounds, so. Oh, wow. I was, nice. and, I, and it was a year after Return of the Jedi came out. So um, they actually had me, um, they put me next to a, a premature baby in the like hospital and made jokes about how I was Jabba the Hutt. No, I and my parents how. think this is great the because Jedi. my brother was born five years later, also 10 pounds, and the nurses did the exact same thing. <laughs> <laughs> so... Yeah, but anyway, uh, David has now very smartly given us a segue to our topic for the day, which has to do with the concept of intelligence. Uh, this is brought to our mind by a lot of things um, that have been going on lately. Basically, anytime Trump says anything, we're forced to question the very notion of sentient thought. But, um, but also the way people have been treating freshman Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Now, I believe we've discussed her on the show before, and neither of us are, you know, huge fans of hers. But we're not, we're not anti Alexandria Ocasio Cortez. Um, I mean, I will say for my, well, yeah. I will say for my part that I think that um, she is a genius with social media. Um, she actually tweets responses to things that are charming and funny and very humanizing. There was that thing a week ago when the Republicans thought they were somehow going to shame her by posting a video of her dancing in college and this just resulted in her doing a dance outside of her outside of her congressional office and posting it and people loved it and she had a delightful tweet the other day where um it was a story where joseph lieberman said that she was not the future of the party and her response was to retweet that and say new party who dis yeah which i, I thought, thought was, was brilliant so yeah and then yeah. uh well it's also interesting that like new party who dis it's sort of funny that like uh, Hillary Clinton says delete your account and people are like oh god Hillary Clinton killed this meme but Ocasio-Cortez does who dis which is also a dead meme I mean that's an old phrase you know old phone or who dis, you know new phone who dis um, but because she's young and attractive she's therefore cool and what she says is cool um, so, but it's also, I think because people, it must've been, I mean, another difference is that like people just assumed that someone wrote that for Hillary and therefore it was inauthentic and, and vile. So even though it was appropriate and apt, I mean, it was apt for the, for the occasion, but the inauthenticity of it made it awful, whereas with Ocasio-Cortez, like, you know that, of course, she wrote that. Yeah. And it it, was, well, it played into yeah. existing perceptions of Hillary Clinton, just like the existing perception of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is that she's very good, she's, she's young and smart with social media. 
Right. And, but then, but this actually gets into the core of the issue that we're talking about because um, this obsession with authenticity, which I think, you know, that is the difference, right? That um, you know that Hillary Clinton didn't write it. And so the fact that it was put out there in her name made it seem like it was pandering and, you know, very, very uncool. And the fact that it's obvious that Ocasio-Cortez wrote that herself, or it, it appears obvious that it, right. she wrote that her, herself, um, makes it seem cool and authentic. But the, <laughs> the thing about being a member of the government, a member of Congress, is that you have staff. You right. have to have staff. That's, it's, it's, you know, the, the, the work of governance is too complicated for authenticity. And so you are a, you are the Leviathan. Even if you're the little Leviathan of your office of 10 people, uh, you are the face, you are the persona of this corporate body um, who work for you. And, um, you know, Ocasio-Cortez, you, I was actually going to object uh, and, you know, listeners who are uh, uh, on their toes would have heard my little guttural uh, beginning of an objection when you said that we weren't like her biggest fans. Cause the, I mean, the first thing I heard about her was the, was when she, I, I, I don't think I heard about her while she, while the primary was ongoing. I think yeah. it probably was uh, basically after the election was over. Um, but I mean, when the primary was over, but I was thrilled because I, because I love democracy. I love the striving positive sort of Walt Whitman-y multiplicity of America and the fact that she went out there and struggled and won is, you know, it was fantastic. And so I, I was a huge fan um, in terms of what she represents about America uh, and about democracy, not America like the indispensable nation, whatever, like myths about America, but just what she represents about democracy and what America can be. Um, so I'm a huge fan from that standpoint. Um, and I'm also a big fan of her, like being a politician with, you know, representing her ideas and putting her ideas out in the arena and saying like, okay, 70%, top marginal tax rate. Come at me. Give me an argument. You know, tell me why I shouldn't support this. You make your argument, I make my argument, and the best argument wins. The most persuasive argument wins. That's democracy. That's what America should be about. And that's awesome. Um, you know, I don't know. Per so, like, if what you meant was, like, I don't know personally that I would argue for a 70% mar top marginal tax rate, in that case, maybe I'm not her, you know, her biggest fans or whatever, but I'm definitely not anti Right. Well, that all. is what we discussed this slightly before the show began, and yeah. that was essentially the point we wound up on, which is that neither of us is anti Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez. Um, and what I meant by not her biggest fans is more that um, the, the, the hype around her has right. gone rather absurd. There, there were articles saying things like, it's, it's wrong that the Constitution prevents her from running for president just because she's only 29, which is, you know, that's the headline the actual article can make a very cogent well, point. Well, if she's about. 29 now, then she'll be, she'll be 30 
We have to be 35 to be president. 30, is it 35? It's 35. It's, oh. it's 25 for Congress, uh, 30 for Senate, and 35 for okay. president. All right. Yeah. No, I, I keep getting that confused because I think of the Senate as the older. Right. Because the word means that. <laughs> which is what it should be. But yeah. Exactly. Yeah. High school Latin. Why? Yeah. Why are you doing this to us? If we just had a Spartan Gerosia. Oh, wait. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I meant basically that we weren't on the crazy hype train for her. Um, and I mean, I'm at the point where, as I said, I find she's a breath of fresh air. Her, so her, her awareness of how to express herself is delightful. Uh, her personal engagement on a lot of things is great. Um, what I actually like about her the most is part of why we're bringing her up and part of why so many people don't like her which is that I get the sense that when she says something that she gets her facts wrong, she gets her numbers wrong. I get the sense that she cared what the true facts were and that she is interested in educating herself on these things in contrast with another very authentic politician, (laughs) Donald Trump, who we also know writes his own tweets, or at least most of them. There's always those fun games of which ones are sent from iPhone versus Android and which ones were clearly written by staff. But, um, you know, he is someone who clearly does not care what the truth is at all. Yeah. He's, as yeah. the distinction between lying and bullshitting goes, which we've discussed in earlier podcasts, he's the consummate bullshitter. He neither knows nor cares what the truth is. And he's admitted this in speeches. He had one speech he gave where he talked about talking to Justin Trudeau about a, a purported trade deficit we, we had with Canada. And he admitted in this speech that he said this without knowing whether it was true or not or having any idea about it. He just said it. Right. And yeah, and I, um, I mean, on that note, there are ways in which, um, so, so there, there's this whole media obsession with, with, you know, Ocasio-Cortez because they know that people will click on the links if they show her face or her name or her acronym. (laughs) So, you know, so they, they're, they're in love because, uh, it gets them clicks. Um, and so the media narrative has this, uh, or the, the media have a collective corporate interest in promoting this idea of a, um, of a conflict of people trying to shut her down um, and seizing on, you know, her being, uh, her being green, you know, her, well, yeah, literally, and figuratively right. in, in all senses, you know, her, her being green, uh, not knowing her facts, uh, being going, you know, going off half cocked. Um, but the thing about her, that's actually so great, like even greater than, uh, the sort of nominal hardline supporters that she has in the context of that narrative is that her response has always been like, Yes, I need to be fact-checked because I need to know when I've made mistakes so I can improve and learn the right figures and perfect my arguments and perfect the policy proposals that I'll end up making. You know, her, her response has always been like, yes, bring it on. I want this. Do correct me. Do pay attention to what I'm saying and, you know, point out the errors because I will grow and incorporate, you know, the, the, pro- the proper criticism. And I forget... Um, exactly what she wrote, but I mean, she, she like tweeted out, uh, one of the like Washington post fact checks, 
uh, with a statement to that effect of like, this is, this is great. I want this, right. uh, which again, is just, com- just completely the opposite of, of Trump. And so it makes the people who, um, said like, Oh, look, AOC is just the, <laughs> there's this media who just like, um, certain elements of the media are just obsessed with finding the democratic Trump. Right. You know, the Democrats version of Trump. And so they're like, Oh, they can't go to Michael Avenatti anymore. Cause it's odd, you know, because it is even more obvious than it always was that he did not really represent any significant part of the democratic party's, uh, interest groups or, you know, or voter base. Uh, so it's like, oh, well, now let's go with AOC because she's making these sort of, why, uh, you know, relatively ungrounded comments. Um, but but then it's like, yeah, okay, inaccuracy in what you say, if that's enough to put you on the same footing as Trump, I mean, it's ridiculous. It's, it's, right. a, it's a stupid standard. Right, especially because an important thing – with someone who's a freshman congresswoman is we come back in two years when she's up for re-election or if she runs for any other office and we can say, all right, now let's check in that she's had two years to have this be her job, that this is what her life has been focused on and see, you know, how many of these mistakes is she still making and how has she adjusted for the mistakes made in the past? Trump in the two years that he's been president has learned nothing and changed nothing. And getting worse and worse. He's getting worse. That's some of the news stories are downright frightening about this shutdown, where it's starting to sound like Trump, and not just Trump, but a lot of the people around him who were supposed to know better, really didn't understand what a shutdown means, and now they're stuck. Right. They're they're rhetorically stuck. Well, what's even worse is that they're not stuck because they're doing all this bureaucratic administrative sleight of hand to reopen parts of the government that really do represent the path to Caesarism, right? right? Like the whole point of the separation of powers is that Congress has the power of the purse. It's the entire, I mean, that's the fundamental distinction between the two bodies. And it goes back to the, to the British parliamentary example that the birth of the parliament as the sovereign body was over funding the monarchy. Right. You know, in the English, uh, you know, the, uh, I mean, now. Are you trying to say Magna Carta? Because. Well, uh, not, I mean, maybe the Magna Carta, but no, I was thinking of, um, of Charles. Oh, Charles the first. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, the long parliament rising up, uh, and establishing the, sort of, uh, I mean, the early modern foundation of parliamentary supremacy. Um, and, uh, you know, that's what the whole thing was about. I mean, that's, that was, uh, obviously we, we don't have a parliamentary system, but putting the power of the purse in the legislature was specifically to avoid the notion of, of the president saying, you know, I am going to do what I want. I have my own policies and I will, find the money to do what I think is right because that's not the point. The president is supposed to execute the laws passed by Congress with the money appropriated by Congress. And obviously we've gone pretty far in terms of our 
understanding of what the American government government is and where its sources of legitimacy lie. But, um, but again, I, I think, you know, Trump is like, um, I mean, he's Trump, Trump is like a fire or a, or an earthquake or a plague or something that in the event is a terrible catastrophe, but the result of which, uh, is a certain stiffening of the spine. I mean, to a certain extent, it's like the view um, that's sort of behind Shakespeare's Richard III, that Richard III's uh, being king is essentially the divine scourge that comes and cleanses England of the sin of deposing Richard II. Yeah, I mean, the, you know, this whole this whole concept of the nemesis, uh, the furies, the notion of tragedy that those who the gods would destroy, they first make mad. Right. Yeah, that's well, I, what... I thought that saying was those whom the gods would destroy, they first put on the cover of Time magazine. <laughs> okay. That's how I've always well, heard that phrase. The Greek might have been different. Yeah, well, you know, and how many times has Trump been on the cover of Time magazine? He thinks, more than anyone else, he is wrong, well, exactly. though. Yeah. It, well, it depends on that whether you count his fake covers. they drove him mad. Right. Or and he put himself on the cover count of Time his magazine. fake covers. Um, but you know, it's not as though Trump knows, like it could anyone with a straight face say, oh yeah, I believe Trump is aware of the, of the view of British parliamentary procedure that underpinned the creation of the American (laughs) constitution. Could any of us say that with a straight face? And he even has the slightest idea what any of that means. And it's not necessarily the case that it matters, right? Like, uh, you know, I, I love, I love etymology and i love the origins of things you know i love history you do i'm sure that anybody who is still listening to this channel at least tolerates <laughs> right. you know, tolerates those types of discussions but it's it's not necessarily the case that you that you need to know that stuff because also i also bet that alexandria ocasio cortez doesn't know that right. i mean like i would be i wouldn't be shocked if she has a sense of you know, British early modern history, but, um, you know, but I'd be surprised if she was kind of fluent in it. Right. Um, and, and it doesn't matter because it, it, it's kind of, it'd be a, a dumb litmus test to apply to her because her job is to represent her constituents and to lead them based on the principles that she ran on. And those are, you know, changing the redistribution of wealth or changing the distribution of wealth in our society based on changing the policies that lead to wealth creation and redistribution that we have and, uh, and, you know, and and fighting climate change. And she's, she's doing that, you know? Right. But this is what takes us to our concept of what is intelligence? What does it mean to be smart? And, you know, Trump has called himself intelligent many times in very over-the-top language. He talks about how great his brain is and all of these things, which, yeah, not super believable. But, I mean, something that I would posit as a distinction between the two is that um, I at least get the sense, and as I said before, this is this is the part that makes me like her, because I've seen her watch 
other people give talks on things and be paying attention. Whereas when you watch <laughs> Trump have other people talk, he's just crossing his arms and furrowing his brow, wondering why he isn't speaking. And, um, you know, I get the sense that if we started to talk about this subject, she'd find it fascinating want to talk about it. If you started to mention this to Trump, he would not even listen. And so when we get to this question of intelligence, one of the things that, you know, this is what the two of us are, you know, sort of particularly, I don't know, guilty of, but something that we sort of represent is we're the kind of intelligent that knows lots of things. And those, because that's one form of intelligence is knowing things. You know, we can make references to British, the history of the British monarchy, you know, the history of the Peloponnesian War. We can talk about all of these obscure things that most people have not even heard of because it really doesn't impact their daily lives. And that's one thing that people sometimes view as intelligence, this okay. knowledge of trivia. But the modern major general. So. Exactly. Um, and, uh, but, you know, what they know of modern <laughs> As it were, another erudite and and sort of pointless uh, reference to Gilbert and Sullivan. Yes, exactly. Um, but it, but his knowledge only goes up as far as Napoleon, which, you know, that's kind <laughs> of an issue. Um, so, yeah, um, yeah, that is one form of intelligence, knowing things. There's a, a wonderful analogy that goes around on the internet about how to explain what Dungeons & Dragons ability scores mean. And you <laughs> do it through analogy with tomatoes. Because there are six stats in Dungeons and Dragons. Strength is how well you can crush a tomato in your hand. Dexterity is how well you can dodge a tomato that is thrown at you. Constitution is how well your body can hold up to eating a a rotten tomato. Intelligence is knowing that a tomato is a fruit. And um, wisdom is knowing that a tomato does not belong in a fruit salad, even though it is a fruit. And then charisma is your ability to sell someone a fruit salad with tomatoes in it. But, you know, that distinction there between intelligence and wisdom, you know, as dungeon, as games, a lot of video games view it, World of Warcraft is in a similar category on how it does its stats. The idea is that intelligence is knowledge, knowing things, and wisdom is the ability to um, basically how quickly you can perceive and have an intu- intuitive insight into those things once you see pieces of information. And patience is listening to all of that and charity is thanking you for describing it those are not dungeons and dragons stats you are using (laughs) some other game system i am not as familiar with um but anyway um before i was so rudely interrupted something that i've noticed too is um because when people want to talk about intelligence they often want to people want intelligence to be a very straightforward ranked system where you can say x is more intelligent than y um, but it doesn't work that way. And this this is something that always bothered me a bit um, when I was younger in ways that, you know, as, as an adult, I'm kind of like, well, I was just whatever. But, um, you know, when you would do those senior superlatives in middle school and high school and they'd say, who is the, the most intelligent? Who's the smartest? And it would almost always be the person who was like best at the math and science classes. You know, I, I, and I was often the one who was the best at the history classes. And so, or, or English classes. And so, you know, I would tend not to get it. And, you know, child me would be very annoyed by this um, because, you know, I'd sort of be thinking like, it's not fair that people think math and science ability is what makes you intelligent and not these other, you know, quote unquote, softer social science things. But, you know, in reality, you know, looking back on it as an adult, those people also had higher GPAs than I did overall. 
and it was not <laughs> it was not unfair to give it to the other people regardless um but but that is i think because i was a history and english person instead of a math and science person i always had um I want, because I wanted to have a very motivated reasoning to want to view intelligence as something that's a bit more, um, a little bit more amorphous, a little bit more impossible to test where it's sort of about your ability to, you know, analyze information and, uh, perceive, and, 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 um, I'm also quite good at just recalling random trivia, but, you know, I was less fond of the straightforward, um, but consistent logical step-by-step thinking that is useful in mathematics and science. That was not my strong point. I was still good at it, relatively speaking, but it wasn't my strength. And so that kind of intelligence I used to downplay. Uh, do you have a similar view mm-hmm. on how you, how you viewed the concept of intelligence throughout your life? Um, yeah, I mean, it's an interesting point about that kind of high school experience. Cause I was also more or less in, in, in your boat, I, you know, I didn't graduate the top of my class in high school. Um, and I sort of, yeah, I was, I was competitive and almost resentful of the people who did better than me in, uh, you know, calculus and physics. And as a result, um, ended up at, you know, one and two, uh, if I recall correctly, I was third appropriate as the third son of my family. Um, cursed to tertiary status. But I think that, um, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not an expert on, uh, you know, cognitive science and, uh, theories of, of intelligence. But I think that, um, the sort of studiousness and focus on detail that, allow you to, I I mean, I I don't know that these are so inextricable. I I think that they're probably largely similar brain functions that are, that you can apply to different disciplines. So getting the big picture, having the ability to, to sort of, grasp a pattern and apply it on a broad scale is, as I understand it, something that is crucially important to a certain type of mathematics, um, as well as a certain way of, you know, writing about history, for example. Um, Whereas the drive to nail down every detail at its tiniest, you know, in its sort of tiniest variation, um, is utterly essential to different kinds of quantitative mathematical, you know, scientific, uh, endeavors, as well as different kinds of writing history. Also using that as my go-to because that's my, exactly the flip side of that is that so much of science and math where the breakthroughs occur, where the really interesting things happen, um, the moments which they try to get you, I mean, I had some, I had some discovery method science teachers in high school. And so I'm familiar with this, but they try to get you to have that moment where you're looking at a bunch of results from your experiments and you go, wait, why is this one, you know, different? What what was going on here? And isn't that interesting? And then you, you have to see 
it's that it, it's also important to be able to look at a bunch of stuff, perceive a pattern, and then understand when something has broken the pattern and try to figure out why. And to have right. that sense of curiosity, which, again, is important for a historian, because if you just blandly wrote down all of the facts, that tends not to make great history because you're not really getting at what's relevant. You have to have that ability to see the whole picture to pick out the relevant details as well and to leave out the details that are not relevant. Something that's also very important in English writing, where the old saying is, if I had more time, my story would have been shorter. Right. I've always heard that as a um, if I had time, I would write you a shorter letter. Well. Wow. I mean, that might be the original form of it. I don't yeah. know. But in any case, yeah, it's um, it's interesting because yeah, part of the whole point of empiricism is that you don't know what's relevant data until you've studied it. Right. Because, you know, I mean, there's a great story that Lawrence Krauss, uh, that I heard from Lawrence Krauss about the discovery of gravity waves where... Uh, when these massive sensor arrays um, were first put online uh, and made operational, the um, you know the the professors who were running these projects, the scientists, the sort of full science uh, scientists, and I say professor to distinguish them from their grad students who were right. uh, sort of running the operation. So the, the, you know, these professors, scientists, full PhDs who were running it, you know, they said, okay, uh, turn it on, make sure it's working, but don't record any data until, you know, until 12 hours or so, whatever, give it, give it time to warm up. Hmm. And the graduate students ignored that and they recorded the data immediately. They started recording data immediately after turning on the system, which allowed them to discover the first instance of gravity waves ever recorded in human history, proving theories that Einstein had uh, sketched out a hundred years ago um, that occurred or that were recorded within an hour of the system going online. So you know, I, which is, I, I don't know if you would know this then. that's fa I've never heard this story. That's fascinating. Was, was it because something about the warming up of the machine resulted in getting that data or was it because they just happened to have it on at exactly the right moment? In the first half. Well, the thing is that it's so it's a it's a beautiful example of this, the role of serendipity right. in scientific discovery, but also of the importance of the kind of anal retentive focus on data that someone you know focusing on the big picture would say, oh, you know, the the, the first this first slew of this first tranche of data won't be good. Uh, so just you know don't record that data. But it's like no, I must record all the data. Uh, that kind of anal approach right. in this case uh, bore fruit. But of course, you know, Krauss also continued to say that um, it's not like if they hadn't, you know, if they turned it on two hours later, they would have missed it. And, you know, we would never have discovered gravity waves and it would have been a, a waste of money because in order to get the funding to build this, you know, multi-billion dollar sensory array, they had, you know, the theoretical scientists uh, demonstrated that they believed that it was likely that these types of events occurred every month or so. Okay. And so, and, and that, that turned out to be true. Um, and those data have also been uh, collected. But 
you know, so, it's, so this is not an example um, of serendipity that you can really like, you, you can exaggerate it, you know, but in the same way that it would be stupid to say if that particular apple had not fallen on Isaac Newton's head at that particular afternoon, he would never have discovered gravity, right? Like that's, that's a stupid version of history. It's obviously not the case. Right. It, I mean, that's the whole, the idea of the Eureka moment going back to, it was, was it Archimedes in the tub? My mind Archimedes just suddenly, yes, tub, it was Archimedes yeah. in the tub. Ar Archimedes in the yeah, tub. Yeah, realizing how the, how the water was rising as he got into it. Um, you know, if he hadn't taken a bath that day, would he never have figured it out? I mean, there right. certainly are lots of things where random chance plays a huge role. Um, but I think we as a society and a culture try to create we want more of this serendipity in science because we want an easy explanation for things that we can tell people when we explain the concept, even though the reality of it is that people like Isaac Newton and Archimedes spent their lives researching this stuff. And that's a complicated story that you can't just tell kids in a classroom as easily. Well, exactly. And it's, well, it's the same. It's not the same, but it's analogous to the debate over how to communicate uh, regarding climate change. Hmm. For example, that there's there's a context. There's a broader context. There's a broader context for scientific discoveries, and like the particulars of when the Eureka moment occurs are like the storms that we're seeing now in our lives. That you know, we know that someone who is spending their life working on something is more likely to right. have Eureka moments at some point or other. Or even if they don't sort of register them as Eureka moments, they're going to make progress of some kind. And you can't say exactly what it's going to be until it happens. But, you know, it's going to be pretty clear that the graduate students working on that, uh, li I want to call it LIBOR, but that's the London Interbank Overnight Rate. <laughs> Um, <laughs> but, you know, the, this, this laser sensor array that discovered gravity waves, you know, it's pretty clear that in these highly technical trained fields, you know, the people who have devoted their lives to it, are they going to be the ones making those discoveries? It, even though you can't predict exactly, you know, what and when those discoveries will be, uh, before they happen. And that's sort of similar to the idea that it's just a sort of probabilistic understanding of how these things work and sort of by the way the that... I, I guess this is actually not relevant to really interrupt you but it was called it was the it was the LIGO not the LIBOR LIGO LIGO yeah. thank you for that and thank yeah, you for interrupting me because yeah, I know I I'm completely kind of destroyed your ability I am your no I mean I finished I finished my point I mean, it, it, hopefully people can understand the analogy I was, that I am I was describing. hoping to make myself your visitor from Porluck but I guess not um anyway what that went right over my head. Oh, so when Samuel Taylor Coleridge was in an opium-induced whatever, and he came out of it and oh, started writing yeah. Kublai Khan, a visitor from Porluck interrupted him, and that's why the poem didn't work out, because he wasn't done writing it. That's a good... I knew the Coleridge story, uh, but not the Porluck... Uh, I believe it was particular Porluck. visitor from Porluck but, phrase. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that's another one of those bits of completely useless knowledge that we have, but... One of the things that is, um, you know, to some extent, people consider rote memorization to be sort of the least exercise of intelligence. And I think that that's true, but you can't under, uh, un you can't, you can't undermine the importance of that because um, 
something that I noticed in law school, sometimes people wonder why you would have a closed book test on anything when in real life you get to do research. And I sort of came to realize that part of why a closed book test, not all tests are closed book, not all of them are open book. Part of why closed book is actually really helpful is that um, imagine that you dumped somebody who didn't actually know any cases into a law library and said, here's the issue. Good luck. They would have no idea where to start. I mean, they might know for a certain category to look at, mm -hmm. but but it's very different from if if you hear an issue and immediately go, oh, that reminds me of Buck v. Bell. And then you just immediately go and look up that case and look up cases that have cited that case and so on. Yeah. Um, like that's a much more efficient thing to do. And there are also times where you hear about an issue and you go, well, that reminds me of a different issue I heard once. Th that ability to have that knowledge is a necessary part of using the creativity and the intuition. Yeah, I think that's, uh, I think that's true. And, um, it's, I think it's just, uh, I don't know. It's a complicated topic and it's complicated for a lot of reasons. And, and last week I was having a long conversation with my brother about grading and I was sort mm -hmm. of having flashbacks to a year ago of, um, sort of flagellating myself trying to think through the moral implications of the grades that I was giving these students. Right. And, um, you know, what was it for? Where did it signify, you know, what were the standards that I was applying? Was I applying them fairly? Was I applying them in the same way that the other teaching assistants were applying them and, you know, all this stuff? Um, you know, to what standard should I hold these individuals? And that kind of gets to, to what you were talking about of the, right. in terms of the test. Um, but at, at some level, uh, there, there are just things that people should learn and if they don't learn them, they're not bad people, but then they fail the standard. And if they fail the standard, that should be registered hmm. and that shouldn't, it shouldn't, you know, imply to them that they're. Again, I mean, it shouldn't imply to them that they're like unworthy of love and respect as individuals, but if they care, they should be ashamed and be spurred by that shame to do better or find something else to do. Hmm. And well, there's yeah. just a, you know, we want experts. We want people who know what they're doing. Well, we want experts. Yeah, well, okay, there you go. No, but society does too. And even people who don't think they want experts actually do want experts because... Right. But we have know, a whole idiots. political party dedicated to, as Tom Nichols put it, the death of expertise. I mean, he didn't well, right, say about that Right, but it's not just them because, I mean, these idiots who are like anti-vaccination. You know, right? I, although they I don't will... actually They don't think they want vaccinations, but they actually do want everybody else and their kids to be vaccinated so that their precious snowflake children don't get these terrible diseases that right. although you know, I would I would note that the anti-vaxxers as leftists is not an entirely accurate um, portrayal no no I wasn't saying oh, okay. I, I didn't mean to imply that I, I, I understand I did not communicate that properly um, I read it as a both sides thing you jerk yeah no I, I wasn't saying like oh you have Trump on one side and the anti-vaxxers on the other side uh, I, I understand anti-vaxxing to be like an independent thing. It's not, 
it's not Republican or Democrat, but that is to say that it's kind of amorphous in both. I mean, I think it is both sides. And Trump, well, Trump, Trump is an anti-vaxxer and Hillary Clinton was not, so. Well, yeah. But, but yeah, I mean, you raise a good point there. Um, speaking of tests and grades, the other part that I wanted to sort of touch on here um, is the idea of an IQ, um, which I find to be very problematic. Now, uh, full disclosure here, I have never taken a proper IQ test. I don't know what my IQ is. Um, so when I say this, I don't know if an IQ test is something that would make me look good or make me look bad um, <laughs> because I haven't done it. I've taken all those other tests that we had to jump through um, as hoops when we were applying to various things, you know, the SAT, the LSAT, all of that stuff. Um, and I, I mean, you know, a lot of those tests put my intelligence at very, very high. But again, I've never taken a, an IQ. In test. case you wanted to know. <laughs> well, I mean, they, they already knew. Um, <laughs> but as I have a friend who constantly, well, actually I have many friends who constantly sarcastically remark that I'm very humble. And I will, I will very quickly point out that I have never claimed to be humble. Right. Um, right. I mean, right. I, I'm sort of jokingly over the top um, n not humble, but in truth, I, you know, I, I, it is important to have a good sense of your limits. And there are a lot of things that I'm not as good at. Yeah. I try to be aware of that, but yeah. if you don't, if you're not aware of your limits, you end up being Donald Trump. Right. Well, I think you, one must have an awareness of one's limits, but one also must cultivate the, you used the word before, the thumos, you know, the self-regard to, yeah. um, to respond to setbacks with drive and resilience and determination and resolve. Um, and, and actually you this know is your limits because with... that's how you push beyond them. Right. Well, yeah, I mean, that's sort of paradoxical. Uh, there's a paradoxical truth there. Right. Um, but uh, and as, this is also part of the conversation I was having with my brother because he was talking about uh, teaching, uh, you know, students, English and um, he mentioned, you know, a, 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 like a, a quiz that was scheduled that was, I mean, it actually goes to what you're saying. It was a um, sort of, it was an open book quiz, but the students were told to make sure that they had the text so that they could make, you know, arguments about it. I don't know exactly what the, what the test was, but it was something that's like, you know, telling all the students, make sure to have your copy of the book um, or make sure that you have printouts so that you're prepared to take the test. And some of the students, despite multiple reminders and warnings and, and you know, including immediately before the test itself, didn't have, didn't, I mean, they weren't prepared. And so, you know, this spurred me to, to this spurred this conversation that included the discussion of grades that I mentioned before. And it, um, you know, it's just interesting things. It's like, do you say, okay, well, you know, let's just ignore that test. If the student gets a 50 or a zero because they weren't prepared, let's just, let's just ignore that grade. Let's throw it out. Hmm. You know, or do you create a system where, that grade serves as a stimulus to the student to say, this is why it matters that you pay attention. Right. 
as well as being you know, an indicator to other people who, you know, other schools that are thinking of taking that person, that this is a person who does or does not put the work in. Right. Well, but the, so the problem with, and I agree with you, what you just said, but the problem with that is that because we're talking about children, fundamentally, the whole vision and approach should be focused on their ability to change and grow. Right. And so a data point that... Because you don't want them to be like Satan. You want them to be like God in the angels. <laughs> Thank you for reminding me that I have already beaten that horse to death. <laughs> no, but... I wasn't reminding you to beat it to death. I was simply doing a callback for our loyal listeners. To our loyal listeners. Have you even published that episode? Or... I have not. Um, getting and setting up a new computer, which was not okay. the computer that it was saved on, was something of an issue. My plan there was to go. post it between. My plan was to post it between now and when my Dungeons and Dragons starts at two. Okay. Well, hopefully we'll. we'll... I mean, and eventually I'll post the one with my conservative friend. Which yeah, I'm from I don't know November whenever. Yeah, that'll be an interesting time capsule. That'll be the day. Yeah. Um, Speaking of time capsules, yeah. actually, um, so I have perhaps on this very podcast, but many times in real life, um, you know, referred to the just cynical stupidity of the Republicans um, doing like, what was it, 76 votes to repeal no. the ACA? Yeah, and then, and then completely dropping the ball and they actually could have done it. Right. Um, and obviously, you know, I, I stick with what I said, but I was reminded the other day, and this just totally blew me out of my body when I, when I was reminded of this. It just took me so far back. The Democrats did the same thing with Iraq war funding. Hmm. They voted 42 times to defund the war in exactly the same way, you know, knowing that it would not go anywhere uh, just to send the political signal. Right. And obviously totally different contexts, you know, signaling opposition to the war um, while I think deeply cynical and corrosive of the proper functioning of government um, as well as unpatriotic, um, although that's an arguable point. Uh, you know, in the context of saying this war should end, the troops should come home is very different from, you know, voting to deprive Americans of a system that provide that was currently the only, um, means so far, uh, you know, structured to, to, to make sure that they had access to healthcare, very, very different things in context, but, um, you know, but but an actual example of both sides, you know, of sort of both both sides is some right. offering well, a legitimate I mean, I could, critique. I could suggest that what might be the difference there is that Democrats did that in what was I mean, I don't I don't remember what they were saying. So my speculation here could be totally off base. But um, I mean, I would say that there is a difference if this is what happened and it probably isn't between saying we're voting to defund this as a symbolic gesture, knowing it won't go anywhere Versus what the Republicans did with Obamacare, where they, they weren't doing that saying this is symbolic. They were saying, oh, no, we're really going to do it. This is the thing we're going to do. This is our agenda, and then didn't do it. 
I don't think that did the Democrat. I don't think the Democrats ever actually run on ran on. We're going to deprive the troops of funding if you give us the power to do so. Well, I mean, it was we're going to end the war, right? So I mean, it wasn't like but, we're going to leave them over there with nothing. It was we're going right. to make sure that they all come back as quickly as possible. And that's again, that's a totally legitimate policy position that they had as their position. You know, that was what they were running on. That was what their constituencies, you know, wanted them to do. But the um, I mean, the focus I'm making now is on the kind of stunt, you know, the stunt right. aspect of it, of like, oh, let's have another vote, you know. Right. Nothing I, else is happening, I so let's just do another vote to, you know, on the same thing that we, that is no actual different possibility of it being implemented or, you know, passed into law than it was last month. But let's, okay, it's time for another empty right. gesture. I, yeah, I definitely think any of those votes after, you know, if you're doing one per Congress, because I remember the argument for the Republicans being, well, now that we've had another election, we haven't given our new members the chance to vote against Obamacare. Right. right. And, you know, like, OK, fine. One per Congress. But, you know, we haven't had 42 Congresses <laughs> since then. So, um, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, anyway. So and I say this. I say this as an enormous fan of Nancy Pelosi. Nancy Pelosi she is, is, a, is an really American effective and competent. Yeah, she yeah. is. She is an extraordinary woman and politician and a. I mean, yeah, she's an object of emulation. She's a great well, American. She is someone who's a classic example of where the outward appearance that people who are paying only very little attention gets is very different from the reality that's under the surface. And, you know, that's that's very true of Mitch McConnell as well. Now. You know, right, for me, right. the distinction between Pelosi and Mitch McConnell is that I think Mitch McConnell uses his power for evil and Nancy Pelosi uses <laughs> it for good. But, you know, that's a, that's a subjective opinion that uh, many people may vary with. So. Right. Right. Yeah. And, um, yeah, it's an interesting – that's an interesting point. Uh, I mean, obviously, I think at the fundamental level, you know – to the extent that we were talking about expertise and intelligence and excellence um, in this podcast, uh, you have to acknowledge it in Pelosi as well as in McConnell. Yeah. McConnell uh, so is very extent, smart about what he's doing. Like he's, yeah, so to, to he's that, very extent, capable and confident. But, but the question that I have now is, um, you know, McConnell despite his reputation as an institutionalist has done many things, you know, has, has shown his expertise in part by doing things that have undermined the political norms that have allowed our country to function. And there's the distinction to the too. what he's done is no, um, I'm not sure if it's just to finish my thought has Pelosi done that. Like, I mean, you know, Pelosi, when I say Pelosi is a, a genius or, in a, you know, in a colossus, I'm referring to the TARP vote, marshalling the votes for the ACA, um, making sure that both TARP and the ACA were able to go through despite initial failures, despite changes from the Senate, you know, ramming it through the, uh, you know, through her own conference. Uh, you know, these things are were extraordinary accomplishments. Yeah. Although we can't... And, 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 which were legislative accomplishments, whereas a lot of what uh, McConnell is good at doing is these, like, parliamentary maneuvers that, by changing the way they're used, 
have increased polarization. So I, I, I'm totally open to the possibility that Pelosi has also done those things, but I don't, I don't know examples of them. Right. Well, I was, I mean, I, it's actually fascinating because I think that that comparison can also be, I'm, if we had a conservative here, I'm sure what we'd hear in response would be, you accuse the Republicans of abusing all of these things to undermine our norms, but Pelosi's um, use of reconciliation to get Obamacare through after Ted Kennedy died was, you know, what set the precedent for the Republicans using reconciliation on their attempts to repeal it and also for the Tax Cuts and Job Act. And then also they would say that Harry Reid's eliminating the filibuster for lower court judges just meant that it was fine for McConnell to do it for the Supreme Court. Right. And I think there are there's a long conversation that, uh, you know, someone with fully or with, with better established conservative bona fides than we have, uh, you know, should be there to to make that argument. But at the same time, you know, I had I don't think I had anything against the Republicans using reconciliation to try to repeal the ACA. I mean, some of these things, it's like, that's just the vehicle that you use. And if you do, it's like, yes, politics is fundamentally combative and, uh, and those types of ploys will, will be employed. But, um, yeah, so it's not illegitimate to do that. I mean, it's like the, you know, I think that I, there's a difference between what you were just describing on the one hand, which I think of as um, maybe in the gray zone, but not so corrosive. Um, and, you know, the Merrick Garland maneuver. Right. Which I see as, I mean, that was one of these things where you know, I said in a previous episode, like I'm putting on my tin hat, foil hat and talking about conspiracy theories. You know, to me, I, I was so outraged by that that it, um, you know, I was open to these like wild-eyed slate pieces about how Obama should just seat Merrick Garland because, like, well, you, you know, you're the Senate, you advise and consent, so you're not advising, therefore, I assume your consent, and he's sitting on the court. No, I actually know? hadn't really. I don't remember back then if I'd actually been thinking about it that way, but certainly in the silence means consent viewpoint, you could say, well, the Senate is silent on it, so I'm going to seat him. Um, that's a, in the context of, of other things we've discussed on this podcast, silence means consent. Is, uh... Well, no, it's, yeah, that's not really that operative a phrase anymore, but it is an old right. Latin legal phrase. Right. Um, not that there are a lot of new Latin legal phrases, but there might be. <laughs> um, it's still, yeah. you know, lawyers still care about it. Uh, but yeah, I just want to wrap up my thought on um, on IQ with just the notation that I, I had a I saw a friend um, the other day who is very active at um, engaging with her Twitter trolls, um, who was fighting with somebody over um, he had referred to high IQ individuals, and she sort of corrected that grammatically you should be you shouldn't be that, that that's. You shouldn't be using that like a noun when you're when it's really an adjective or oh, man. something like that, which um, some obscure rule, I think, since she's a journalist, is comes out of some style guide, maybe. But I, I, it could be a part of English grammar I was simply not familiar with. But it was fascinating to me in part because when she engages with Twitter, troll, Twitter trolls, they tend to be on the right. And 
I did just sort of pause, and it reminded me that um, IQ as a subject, I tend to hear brought up, and maybe I'm wrong about this, maybe my perception is wrong, but I tend to see it as a thing that comes up by right-wingers saying it, um, rather than left-wingers, and right-wingers trying to use it as a way to like end a discussion, say, well, this person has a very high IQ, or I have a high IQ, or my IQ is whatever, but it could also just be jerks on the internet who love to claim they have an IQ over 180, um, but I, I wonder if part of that is because the left has sort of had this, um, it's sort of an accepted thing on the left for a while that IQ tests are racist and, um, in various ways. And you do see people on the right doing the, the Charles Murray. Oh, well, if you look, the, the average IQ among black people is lower than it is among white people. Now that's a gross oversimplification of Charles Murray's views, but, um, it's not like you see a lot of nuanced takes on Charles Murray's views, but, um, but anyway, I, I just the idea of the IQ test and the SAT, these tests that are supposed to supposed to test core attributes of you, have always been a little bit silly based on the fact that you can do better on them by going through prep courses. It's almost like saying you yeah, make yourself well, smarter. You know, it's that's you know, it is possible to make yourself smarter. It is possible to if IQ really is a term that simply means intelligence, it is absolutely possible to make yourself more intelligent. It's possible to learn mental discipline. It's possible to learn more facts. It's possible to expose yourself to enough new experiences that your insight becomes stronger. But that's not really what people are doing when they're getting better at those tests. When I took the LSAT, I remember there was one type of question in particular where I disagreed with what the prep book said the answer should be and why that should be the logic. But I took enough prep tests that I knew that that was a question that came up a bunch with that similar logic. And so when it came up on the actual LSAT, I thought to myself, well, I know I don't agree with this answer, but I know this is the answer. And I put it. And then I did very well on the LSAT. Right. So you know, what is any of that worth? And I yeah, feel like my part understanding of the... is that my understanding is that you know, this, this people who study intelligence are able to differentiate preparation from from quote unquote raw IQ. And my inclination is to acknowledge their expertise on that topic without because um, I think I mean, true, and I don't know, you know very much about I, that. I totally subject. agree with I totally agree with your your fundamental point that um actually i mean this is part of my conversation with my brother and i think i've discussed it with you as well that there's some there's a principle that um any measure will ultimately become a goal right yeah we and discussed as it does so podcast. it ceases to be useful as a measure so yeah we talk about this um and so on these sort of semi-academic or you know quote-unquote intellectual um tests then that's that's also operative but at the same time um i i mean i think that that something that, that uh some of these tests do measure something that is actually a variable that is different between individuals and that is possible that it is different between groups of individuals and that shouldn't say anything about um i mean it shouldn't shouldn't you know racists shouldn't be able to make hay from that type of divergence across populations because this is just a single moment in time and those 
things can change as a result. Uh, I, you know, because people fundamentally, again, going back to the concept of the child, you know, people can grow and change and groups of people can also grow and change. And so um, that should be the understanding. Right. And that... know, both of, you know, viewing individual like students as they grow through children, you know, childhood or whatever, as well as groups of people uh, hoping that they can change for the better. Well, that was part if, of Ezra uh, Klein's yeah. box rebuttal to Sam Harris's take on Charles Murray's research, not to just throw as many random names out as possible. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, the notion that if you look at it, as we've been desegregating things, the gap between white and black achievement on these test scores has decreased considerably. Right, but but I, I don't know that... Um, I don't know that, that there's much value to going into this discussion other than to say that um, it's very difficult, difficult conversations to have because they actually do rely on, you know, very complicated data and right. pretty sophisticated methods for analyzing that data. And unless you have the expertise, it's not clear how much value you add to the conversation by you know, by talking about it, other than to say that, you know, any popular, any, gathering data and aggregating it and analyzing it based on categories like race can be useful for certain measures. Like if you wanted to say, okay, have we done enough to desegregate our education system? Is our education system serving the needs of black children? You know, that should be a goal of our society. And so in order to answer that question, you have to you have to measure, you know, quote unquote black achievement, no matter how sort of crude that that goal is. Um, because what you know, what does it mean to be black? All those all those types of right. questions. Um uh, you know, but it, it's just it's just a complicated topic and a very uh, difficult topic that there should be more light and less heat. And part of intelligence in is knowing what you don't know so that you are willing to defer to experts on certain things where you know that your take on it is just not going to be helpful. And letting wisdom be the better part of valor. Absolutely. All right. And I would also add that there is nothing we can discuss right now that would add value because we are eight minutes over. Um, <laughs> so, so I will bid everyone adieu for this uh, week. Um, stay safe out there during all the snow we're getting right now. Um, good luck to all of my listeners out there who are furloughed as well. I, I hope, you know, you're able to meet all of your uh, obligations, uh, monetary obligations, before they um, end this really awful shutdown, which is now the longest shutdown ever. Um, so with that, I just want to say um, have a great week, everyone.